Welcome to this Vetfolio podcast brought to you in part by Elanco. We're pleased that you've decided to join us as we explore the topic of keeping up with ticks, how the CAPC map can help you protect patients with our guest speaker, Dr. Susan Little. Please note the information in this session is intended to provide you with practical and timely information to assist you as a veterinary professional. The views and opinions provided are those of the presenter and, and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, or policies of Vetfolio and its sponsors. Now let's dive into our session with our guest speaker, Dr. Susan Little. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining the podcast. I'm Susan Little, and in this section, the third of four in a four-part series, I'll review some of the available tick control options for protecting pets from ticks and limiting the risk of infection with the disease agents they transmit. Now, first... Spoiler alert, there isn't one best product or one single recommendation that will do everything we would like it to do in the way we would most prefer. So it isn't an easy one-answer-fits-all solution. But we do have excellent tick control products available and more on the way, the best I have ever seen in my career. So really, there has never been a better time to be choosing tick control for pets or a worse time to be a tick trying to feed on one of your patients. That doesn't make it easy for us, of course. There really are a huge array of choices. But fortunately, there's several good ones available. So first, why recommend tick control at all? When I talk with veterinarians in practice, many tell me that they rarely see ticks on their patients. Now, I know some of you listening from high-tick areas in Missouri or Tennessee or my favorite, Oklahoma, or up in the Northeast, maybe Connecticut or New Jersey, or even in Maryland and Northern Virginia where it is all ticks all the time might find that hard to believe, that some vets believe ticks are fairly uncommon on dogs and cats. But in some regions, because the tick pressure is not entirely insane, ticks often do go overlooked. And why is that? Well, if we think about the life cycle of a tick, they really spend just a tiny fraction of their life on the dog or on the cat. A typical hard tick life cycle takes about two years three years in some areas, or they might manage to complete it in one year and others. But on average, it's about 48 months for the tick to go from an egg-laying female to the next generation of egg-laying females. And in that time, the larvae will feed on a host for about three to five days total. Nymphs, maybe four, seven days, and then the adults for about two weeks. So that is a little over three weeks in the entire two-year lifespan that the tick is actually on the dog. The rest of the time, the ticks are in the environment, and of course we wouldn't see them because they're not feeding on the dogs in that moment. And then the immature ticks, the larvae and the nymphs, they're so tiny that they're usually overlooked in all the fur unless they're in a very high number or if they're attached to an obvious site, like on the face or around the eyes. So if the, the ticks feed for two to three weeks or about two to three percent of their whole life cycle, then what are the odds that we're going to have the opportunity to find ticks on the pets in a 15 or 30 minute visit just once a year? And yet the ticks will likely find the pets out in the world. And so a better estimate of tick infestation than finding ticks on dogs or on cats is looking at data from your patients for exposure to tick-borne infections. Ideally, you would consider all infections, but since the infections are transmitted regionally, in the northeastern mid-Atlantic states or in the upper Midwest or Canada, we might think about serology to the agents of Lyme disease or anaplasmosis. In the southern U.S., we would more likely look at antibodies to ehrlichial agents or rickettsial agents. 
Antibodies indicating a past or current infection will generally be a better index for tick exposure than trying to find ticks at a single time point, especially in pet dogs that are hopefully spending most of their time indoors. Another reason to rethink the approach to tick risk and the need for tick control is our understanding about tick activity patterns and knowing when ticks are active in nature and available to feed on pets. As I shared in the previous podcast, ticks are not just out in the warmer months when many of us prefer to be out. They're also questing or looking for a host in the fall and winter months. And those deer ticks or black-legged ticks really prefer to quest in the cooler months of the year from October through to March. So if seasonal tick control is attempted, this coincides nicely and unfortunately with when people tend to let their tick control lapse, October through March, under the misimpression that ticks will not be active in the, quote, winter. Adults of the deer tick, because they start questing at about 40 degrees, they aren't out every day in the winter by any means, but they are active on those few or many, depending on the year, warmer days. So ideal conditions for a deer tick would be some snow cover on the ground with the vegetation poking through, and that warming snow provides a nice layer of humidity as it melts right on the vegetation to keep the ticks from drying out while they're busy seeking a host. And then the deer ticks aren't killed off by a hard freeze. They actually survive freezing quite well, especially if they're nestled down in the leaf litter, insulated by a nice thick layer of snow. They're just waiting for things to warm up so they can go look for a host. So year-round protection is key. We can't predict precisely when that favorable climate will present itself and allow the tick to go seek a host. And if a pet is caught without tick control when the ticks are out, then the opportunity exists for that tick to feed unabated and for disease transmission to occur. So the question then becomes which tick control product to recommend. At present, there's two broad groups or categories of products to choose from, the topicals and the systemics. Topical products are the traditional ones, things like fipronil and the pyrethroids. And one major advantage of topical products, specifically the topical pyrethroids, is that many of them are repellent as well as acaricidal. So they don't just kill the ticks, they repel and kill the ticks. When the tick comes in contact with the compound on the pet, it, the tick, exhibits an aversion behavior and exits the area and then goes on to die. What it doesn't do is insert its mouth parts into the host and initiate feeding. This repellency, and many products with pyrethroid components carry an EPA-approved label, they repel ticks. This repellency provides an additional measure of security against transmission of disease agents. If the tick doesn't feed, then it's not able to transmit infections like Ehrlichia and Anaplasma, Rickettsia, Borrelia, and the like. And transmission studies have borne this out, showing that dogs treated with a permethrin-containing tick control product do not become infected with tick-borne disease agents, or they became infected at a dramatically reduced prevalence. So the topicals work very well when they're consistently applied. But a potential downside of the topical products is just that. They have to be applied topically, so they remain on the surface of the pet, where they'll be available to kill or repel and kill, depending on the product considered, any ticks that the pet encounters. But some owners and veterinarians don't want to have an acaricide on the surface of the pet at all times, and they might prefer a systemic product. Now, the systemics that are available are all members of the isoxazoline class. They're administered orally, or in some cases topically, and then they're systemically absorbed. So in order for the ticks to acquire the drug 
and be killed, they have to insert their mouth parts into the skin and initiate feeding. There's no repellency with the isoxaphalines. The ticks will attach to the treated pets, and then they are killed within 8 to 24 hours of attachment, depending on the compound considered, and likely also when exactly following treatment that the tick bite occurs. So there isn't any repellency, but systemics also don't have any issues of concerns about the presence of acaricides on the pet's fur. So the question then becomes, can the systemics prevent disease transmission? In other words, if they allow feeding to kill the ticks, then won't disease agents be transmitted? Well, it seems the answer is it depends. Organisms that take longer to be transmitted, protozoa like Babesia, for example, their transmission is blocked by isoxazoline treatment. And similarly, transmission of agents that take longer periods of feeding to infect, like Borrelia burgdorferi, which requires 24 to 48 hours of tick feeding to transmit under normal conditions, that has been shown to be interrupted by isoxazoline treatment. So the systemics can block some disease agents, but faster transmission has been shown for both Ehrlichia and Rickettsia species. In fact, Ehrlichia in as little as three hours after tick attachment. And so initial studies show that the isoxazolines might reduce transmission of agents like Ehrlichia and Rickettsia, but they don't entirely block transmission of those agents. So that's the comparison in a nutshell, repellents that remain on the surface to repel and kill ticks and systemics that kill ticks when they feed and reduce disease transmission, often dramatically, but may not entirely eliminate transmission risk for all disease agents. There are certainly other features to consider for both types of products, but with ticks, this is what the decision often comes down to. And regardless of the selection made, it's always important to stress that no tick control is 100% effective throughout the entire treatment period setting up expectations at the outset and explaining that the recommended choice is the best available, but also what steps should be taken when and if ticks are still seen on the pets is really key to successful control. For example, if a systemic is used, then an observant pet owner will likely see attached ticks, especially after spending time in a very ticky environment. So it's important to stress that if this occurs, the product is working, the ticks will die within a few hours to a day, and that if ticks continue to feed and engorge, then product failure has occurred. But attached ticks are expected in a pet treated with an isoxazoline because that's how the product works. If a topical product that repels and kills ticks is used, the pet owner may see ticks walking on the fur of the pet. Those ticks will go on to die, but to the client, they're not dead yet, and that may be cause for concern. Dead ticks may also be found in the pet's bedding or in the car when they're returning with the pet from an outing, like if they took the dog on a hike and they had a, a topical that repels and kills. There may be dead ticks found in the car. And again, this is evidence that the product is working as expected, but it might require some explanation. Whatever product is used, providing really specific guidance and instruction on application method and frequency is also critical. Pet owners often don't realize how active ticks are throughout the year, and they don't know that readministration is really the only way to provide that continuous protection for their pets. And then lastly, there's some areas that are just uninhabitable during certain times of the year because the tick pressure is simply too intense. We see this most often during spring tick blooms with Lone Star ticks, but it can also occur with brown dog ticks in homes and kennels and even with deer ticks in October, November. When the ticks outnumber the dogs, like a 1,000 to 1, 
there's no tick control that's likely to be perceived as effective. One option in this situation is doubling up on tick control using both a systemic and a topical product, for example. But perhaps a better approach is avoid the area until the tick swarm has subsided, which usually occurs within a few weeks. So there's just places that dogs can't go during certain times of the year because the ticks are so bad. Keeping dogs on a leash while on walks and up around the house behind a fence can really go a long way towards supporting the efficacy of whatever tick control product is being used. If there's a home infestation with brown dog ticks and that's the issue, then an exterminator may be needed to knock the infestation back to a level that the dog applied acaricides, whether they're systemic or topical, can then control. But all of this tick control strategizing really only works if we can get owners to see that the risk is real and that it's important to the health of their pets. So in the next podcast session, I'll describe some of the tools that are available to help inform pet owners about the risk that ticks pose. It doesn't have to be dramatic and scary. Sometimes just sharing that your practice is seeing ticks on patients right now or identifying tick-borne infections and disease is enough to help folks realize that this is a timely local concern that requires action. Thanks for listening. Thank you, listeners, for spending some time with us. We hope that you found this information useful today. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Elanco, for their support. Let us know what you thought about this session or what you'd like to hear on future podcasts. You can connect with the Vetfolio team via email at support at vetfolio.com.